Hello, and welcome back to the Brothers Book Club podcast. This is episode 41, that is 4-1, of our Penguin Little Black Classics review collection. Uh, we are here today with a, at this point, regular on the pod. I mean, you're not a brother, but we could maybe ordain you, Amanda. Amanda's oh, here. I could be the sister. Yeah, it, it could just be like the <laughs> family... I, brother, the thing about Brothers Book Club is it has that that small alliteration that I really liked. I like the mm. way it flows. But Family Pod is fine too, and you know we can again we'll induct you into the Wood family, I suppose. <laughs> anyway, uh, Amanda has joined to cover. Uh, okay, we just discussed this, and I already forgot. I know the last name is Debalsac, but mm-hmm. what's the first name? Honore. I I had always pronounced it Honore, but Google was saying Honor. Honor. Okay, it's a French. He's, he was a French author. Uh, wrote a lot of novels and short stories and things. And we're here with Honor de Balzac, and he had two short stories in the Penguin Collection that we'll be reviewing today. Today is also the first day of a new kind of set of reviews. I've looked at the podcast in sort of chunks of twenty. So the first twenty books, Ryan and I did a pretty consistent format, and then in the, the next twenty, uh, the actually ones we just wrapped up. I was experimenting a lot more. Um, this set of 20, I think we're going to return to a much more formatted, consistent review setup and system, uh, different segments, but I think we're going to repeat those segments episode to episode. Uh, Amanda's got her outline here, and we're going to get into it, into it in a second. And so expect a bit more consistency in the upcoming uh, episodes of the pod. I feel like I always enjoy when podcasts have those segments to them. I don't know if you have any that, that do things like that. This is the only podcast I listen to. Oh, hey. Well, I'm flattered. <laughs> no, I know you're lying because you recommended that um, D&D pod to me that I still... Maybe now is the time I'll finally get into it because I, when I would listen to it at the gym, the volume was too low. Mm. What's that one called again? You guys watch the videos? It's called Critical Role. Yeah, I forgot yeah. that that started off as like an actual podcast, but... It's true. It's Their, their whole universe is blown up, right? They're yeah. doing cartoons now. They do videos of everything. Yeah, it's great yeah. though. I think you'd like yeah, it. Yeah, so... I would count that in the pod realm, though. Again, they've you know they found wider success. Um, so anyway, flattered to hear it and excited to get started. What we're going to do for the first segment of the review, um, I should mention too, these short stories. One is called "The Atheist's Mass," and the other one is called "The Conscript." Uh, there were two again short stories. Um, to introduce our reviewer, to get things started on a kind of lighter note, I think we're going to do one sentence reviews just to. Get some ideas thrown out there right away, but with a slight twist, literary twist, who, you know, I can't resist it, got things I like. Uh, they have to be in simile format. Hopefully, Amanda, you've prepped accordingly. And yeah. so could you give me your one sentence simile review of uh, these stories? Sure. These stories are like philosophy light. <laughs> Is, uh, to- <laughs> so, I, I would love it, do you to expand. Uh, I'm happy to I'm happy to poke and prod you. <laughs> Do you mean to do you mean to compare it to Bud Light, the most reprehensible drink America has ever <laughs> added to the world? I think of anything light, right? So it's mm. um, those of you who who enjoy philosophy might find this a bit um, kind of just bleh. But those who yeah. only dabble in philosophy or who just like reading about other people's ideas on humanity and stuff. I think that it's a lot more enjoyable. It's like an introduction almost into the heavier parts of philosophy. If you wanted to go to. Yeah. And I, I always feel torn on how um, some literary authors tend to be a bit more philosophical than others. Mm -hmm. Um, Just because philosophy is by its nature dense and difficult to kind of crack into or break into. I don't even know, frankly, if 
past intro level philosophy is even useful for living a human life. <laughs> I'm glad that like academics are, you know, really take things quite far and can have their debates and run through millions of hypotheticals and whatever. But I just wonder, I don't know. I feel like that's where fiction can do such a great job is like yeah. it, it, it takes the simple philosophical premises or ideas and then plays with them, tweaks them, you know, puts them into different narratives and scenarios. So I read that uh, simile as kind of a compliment. I think at least that's, if I were listening to this and wanting to read, that would intrigue me, I think. Yeah, I, I like I liked it overall. And yeah, I, I yeah. use the I, I also enjoy philosophy, not not so much like the super heavy academic kind, but like I yeah. like I like hearing about and reading other people's ideas about what it means to be human or like what are the the pros and cons of being a human and stuff like that. I just find that very fascinating. Yeah, it's like a, I almost feel after going through a bit of philosophy in college that it, like it should be a mandatory class in high school, maybe like a senior capstone class, but just intro level. I do yeah. think though, it's sort of like psychology. It's a subject that once you're exposed to it in an academic setting, it kind of blows your mind that no mm -hmm. one had ever taught you these things before. These like pretty, even like the most basic concepts and premises open up a whole new world of thinking to your brain. So Anyway, okay. That's I think that's a very positive simile. Mine is a bit more cutting, though not <laughs> critical or not like negative. And um, my my simile review is that I thought reading this was like having a conversation with a very intelligent high schooler. And I, you've tutored high schoolers. I've worked with high schoolers pretty recently, some of whom are extremely intelligent. Right. It can be such an enjoyable experience, and like some of the high schoolers I've met who are thinking about their futures a bit more and planning, they're, they're pretty. I don't know. I don't want to say wise, but they're pretty well read. They have intriguing ideas, but then they'll occasionally throw out something that's just deeply misled, you know, which of course yeah. is the, their whole, that's the whole deal. I would hope <laughs> if they were totally somber or uh, sober minded about everything, that would be almost more off putting. So it's, it was kind of like it had moments and spots of just real genius and insight where you think, man, this person, how impressive is that? What a great thought with an insight. Mm -hmm. And then also at spots, it's like, maybe you're talking too much. Maybe your idea is a little underdeveloped. Maybe you're getting off topic, etc. Like it kind of had those little moments. And it just reminded me of chatting with a, a bright high schooler. I think that's a great simile, actually. <laughs> it's, it's very fitting for his stories. The two that I thought I so too. Yeah. <laughs> you got any, without naming names, you got any high schoolers you remember from your tutoring days who were, um, who were just super aware, super intelligent, fun to talk to? Uh, yes, um, I won't name any names, but uh, that particular yeah. one of the students, um, he is now at University of California. Oh, good for him. The Hop the coast. The yeah. <laughs> and he's yeah. doing well. And he actually is, uh, he was going to go into the medical field. But after we talked about Wuthering Heights and we worked on some of his like literature stuff, he fell mm -hmm. in love with literature and now he's an English major. Wow. You ruined his life. Holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> Incredible, incredible! That I have to, I have to hear that. I have to hear about that live on the pod. You're getting my genuine reaction. You've devastated his future. His parents have to loathe you. I bet. Jeez. Well, they are Korean, so I'm sure they do. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll leave up those cultural observations to others. But yeah, I've heard, I've heard stories. I've heard um, there are maybe certain expectations in his household. Perhaps I'm not going to make any assumptions. Right. But yeah, that's still funny to me that you talked him out of his. Uh, you know, pretty well trod, reasonable path, and instead he'll he'll walk the path of the English major. So yep. tell him when he does a panic podcast in about a decade that I can give him some tips on uh, <laughs> on what to do and how to produce it. 
let's well, uh, yeah. let's move out of the similes. I want to start on the second segment. Um, I mean, again, I think these first two segments, I'm going to just be explaining them pretty explicitly in this first episode. Um, I think this next one is also designed just to get some general sense of the text. I don't want to dive in quite yet. And I just want to try and connect it to a modern reader. I think the, the goal of this pod and our reviews specifically is always to basically make a sales pitch for a book or, you know, make a mixed sales pitch or a critique as it were. And so I just want to make connections maybe a little more clearly and quickly. What is one 2020, the year 2020 connection you found? What do you think a modern reader will latch onto in this, um, in this story collection? Uh, the one thing that I, I found really interesting was the idea of like the public face versus who you are at home. So anybody yeah. who has a social media account has, right a public persona versus what they are actually like at home. And people actually get in trouble for that um, as well. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> but yeah, it's, I think that's something that they could relate to with these characters is we see who they are around other people, but as the reader and the narrator lets us in, we get to see little pieces of who they are at home too. Yeah. Though certainly the social context and requirements uh, in both our lives and the lives of his characters are pretty radically different. The yeah. it's, it is remarkable how many things are just the same. And I think, yeah, you've hit on such a great baseline point, which is just the, one of the stories in particular, one of the characters is just living a double life essentially. And I feel mm-hmm. a lot of people kind of get that, the stress from that on social media that they, they have to forward face or public face in a much different way. Yeah. I, I think I latched on to something extremely current event. We're recording this at the, uh, for the United States anyway, kind of the beginning of the severe parts of the coronavirus outbreak. If you're listening to this uh, on the moon in the year 20, I don't know, 2100 or something, uh, just Google. If Google still exists, they'll, they'll exist. They'll, they'll be probably living in Google on Google moon or whatever. But it, just Google uh, what the coronavirus was in the year 2020 and you know, you'll get a couple sentences. So we're recording this then. And I just thought I, it was pretty fitting that these stories are about these kind of desperate people tr- trying to feel uh, just human connection in, in these strife, lives of strife, kind of. Though I guess the, the surgeon didn't really have a life of strife. We'll get there. Um, but I just thought it was it was just simple human bonds. And I think people right now being you know forcibly kind of separated will at least latch on to that. Or, or I don't know if they'll move you, these two stories, but they'll at least make you feel appreciation. They'll, they'll um, maybe remind you of some connections that you're missing at the moment. Yeah, I um, when I think of the the coronavirus in connection to these two stories i also think about like the the idea of what a real friendship is and what an actual hero is we hear we hear Mm -hmm. so many stories right now of people being just assholes and like stockpiling things and and reselling them at exorbitant prices and stuff like that it's just ridiculous and then you read these stories and you see oh well being a hero doesn't have to be like your Iron Man or something. It's just showing right. kindness in a time when somebody needs kindness. So I think I- America's definitions of heroism are so bizarre and skewed. I've always felt this way. It's weird too because I started to question it most intensely in high school when I had my I had this obsessive military phase where I, all I did was like buy war movies and um, read about war and study war. Uh, and that's a pretty easy American celebration is of like service, military service, wartime heroism. Mm-hmm. And that kind of is where our heroism definitions tend to skew, I think, like societally, it, which just seem, it's always struck me as odd I, just because our military is a massive bureaucracy and no one likes any other bureaucrats, but we love the military ones. Uh, like we don't like it very broadly speaking, any other government 
uh, agency of such size, we have pretty harsh skepticism of, but the military is like our biggest bureaucracy. I mean, Mm -hmm. they have office workers there who are as uninspiring as any other person's office workers or any other organization. So anyway, that's just a tangent, but I've always just had questions about that since my high school days. Yeah, I think that's a great point you bring up about the the military. And if you talk to any veteran, right, or anybody who is currently serving, it's just like, Mm -hmm. oh, so how long does it take you to get any paperwork done? A million freaking years because it's like they right. still do carbon copies. They do fax. It's like it's still in like the 1970s, 1980s style. Like everything yeah. is so slow. <laughs> it's yeah, it's a, it's such a massive apparatus. And I've always found that. I mean, granted, I get that people don't want to say controversial things in public and that's fine. But I just it's such a weird blanket compliment that people give out, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to, to anyone who's served or I any mean, anyway, the vastness of it is always the thing that baffles me. It's like, man, there's so many jobs in the military. It's like you I don't even think people wrap their heads around like what service can look like or yeah. what working in the Pentagon or where anyway. Um, yeah. Anyway, just things to think about. Let's um, let's get into this book then or in, into these stories then. The next section, I think, is where we'll do the most analytical work and we'll be the most specific. I don't have a name for this yet. I wrote down quotes for the vibe, which I hate so much. I wrote in bold, I have to rename this, but essentially I want to give a few quotes, you know, maybe between four or five, three, something like that, that will just give the listeners, uh, you at home, the most accurate sense of what reading this would feel like, what the stylistic elements will be. Hopefully these quotes can help you immerse the, uh, yourself in the style a little bit. Though granted, I don't think we're always trying to avoid full spoilers, etc. So we're not looking to tell you everything, but we just want to basically cut out a represent um, representative segment of their work. Do you have a quote you want to start with? Anything that stood out to you? I have from the second story, which is the conscript, mm-hmm. um, a quote, and I liked it because I noticed in both. Well, I guess I have a quote from both the first and the second story as far as showing some of the similes and metaphors that he uses. It just, I think stylistically when I was on the pod for um, Gaskell, one of the things that, I mean, her writing was okay. We talked a lot about like how her ending sucked. Oh yeah. (laughs) But her, um, she, I, I saw that there was like a lot of descriptive language, but she didn't really use a whole lot of similes or metaphors to kind of mm-hmm. make clear certain ideas that she had versus yeah. Balzac, who like, I feel like in each paragraph almost, there's at least one simile or one metaphor that he uses. Certainly more dense. I think so. <laughs> yeah. But I enjoyed it actually. So I have um, a couple of quotes and I'll do the one from uh the the atheist mass actually it says displine had i, I guess it's displine or is it displine i'm gonna go with there's definitely and we can just say this right away i have a quote to, to emphasize this later but so many french names names of statues people historical figures places buildings that i'm, we're, I'm gonna be mispronouncing everything I, you know just try your best it's okay there's just <laughs> so many french uh, terms, illusions, names, I, just go for it. Yeah, Displane, Displane, it's Dis- fine. Yeah. It's, a, it's a person's name, you know. Yeah. Uh, so Displane had a godlike eye. He saw into the sufferer and his malady by an intuition, natural or acquired, which enabled him to grasp the, diagnost- the diagnostics peculiar to the individual to determine the very time, the hour, the minute when an operation should be performed, making due allowance for atmospheric conditions and peculiarities of individual temperament. So I like this quote 
for two different reasons. First uh-huh. of all, he's being compared to, right, Desplaine had a godlike eye. This is an atheist, right? I mean, from the very beginning, you know that he's an atheist. So I thought right, that was right. pretty funny. But also, he's a scientist, right? So he's a surgeon. So he's all about science. And in fact, like he goes on to talk about how much he enjoys science and how he lives his life by scientific thought. And then, mm-hmm. but it goes, it's talking about how he can just, it's all natural intuition that he's such a yeah. good scientist and stuff. So I just yeah, thought just, that was pretty funny. He instinctively knows the beaker measurements, you know, <laughs> doesn't even have to look. He, can, he just feels it out. <laughs> exactly. And he knows down to the minute when that surgery should, like it's, I just thought that that was very absurd and, and just kind of it's ironic. Yeah, again, in the time of our coronavirus is giving, we want medical precision at this point. You know, we don't want <laughs> yeah. medical intuition, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's giving our current healthcare system heart palpitations, just if there anyone's listening to this, I'm sure they're like, good Lord, not the kind of medicine uh, practice that we want nowadays. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think too, yeah, so many of his characterizations are so well observed. And mm-hmm. I think uh, that's a, a good example of one. I pulled a quote from my page 22 and um, this was probably my favorite character detail in the entire collection. It was from the first story as well. This describing also, I think it's displaying or displaying. It said the poor man's heart was filled with affections, which had no outlet. The only creature that had ever loved him was a poodle, which had died a short time before his dog was. So he said a true Christian and it had gone to church with him for 12 years without ever barking there, which is, you know, that's, that's, that's how you know the dog loves it. I mean, what better <laughs> sign of a true Christian than just being silent in church? I do love too in that quote. I love that, that the sentence turns at the end. It says, um, it, the only creature that had ever loved him. I thought it was, you know, that's a situation where you're like, Oh, he poured his love into into a dog. It's kind of a sweet thing, or right, you know, it's right. kind of noble to do it. But no, it's like no, even that if the dog was the only one that took pity on him, <laughs> yeah. and it just makes it seem it just cuts his character down so much. And as I'm saying all of this, I did realize that was his mentor, right? That description. It wasn't about displaying. It was when displaying is explaining the old about the old man who cared for him. Yeah, I'm it just was realizing the, that. Yeah, the water carrier. Mm-hmm. Right, which in the end helped explain why he. Um, paid for those four masses per year. Uh, right. And he went to church. He basically, he was an atheist who attended church four times a year. And it's sort of in relation or the, the motivation is because of his mentor who, so that description is about his mentor, but yeah. it's, it's, yeah, that's such a delicate little description. Again, I love the way that sentence turns. And I think it's kind of got like a little humor and heartbreak in it all at once. It's mm-hmm. kind of pathetic, but in a sweet way. And it, you know, it's pitying, but not putting down. I think it just really has it all that a quote like that. And a lot of the character kind of work in the stories felt really well observed in that way to me. Yeah, I agree. I, I love the way that, and, and we've talked about how much I enjoy characterization. So <clears throat> one of the things that I liked about De Balzac was his ability to characterize these, his mm-hmm. characters in a way that makes them a bit more human. Yeah. And that apparently, so I was reading, I did read up cause his name, yeah, I, I knew that he was like a legendary European writer. I had never encountered him again. Most of the classes I did were um, uh, focused on American literature. So my Europe, my Europe knowledge is limited, but anyway, he's like really well regarded, extremely famous um, for writing just a ton of novels, plays and short stories. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he was like at the head of the French realism movement. So he was kind of became known and became famous for having a painstaking eye for detail and adhering to kind of overwhelming the reader with realistic details and observing everything in Paris as he could. That makes sense. He's He was writing during the time of the, the French Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. So that's like they're fighting the 
the whole uh, romanticism and stuff like that. That was yeah, and I guess he was kind of sympathetic to the uh, to the monarchy, to the to the royalists. But we won't get into his personal politics. This is I'm no historian, and I certainly don't know about his life. Just what I read on uh, Britannica and Wikipedia. So, but anyway, it sounds like he he did spearhead that movement or got a lot of credit for being like one of the first French realist writers. Interesting. I didn't know that. Any other quotes you think will give the listeners a sense of his style? I do have at least one more I want to go over, but I'm going to let you take first first crack here. Sure. There was one that um, I thought kind of pointed out how he's really good at making his generalizations about people without being like this. This is the, the philosophy light part, right? Where we see the generalizations mm-hmm. about groups of people. So um, like all men of genius, he had no heirs. He carried everything in him and carried it away with him. So he does comment a bit on the arrogance of displaying, but he's making it uh, about not just displaying, but about anybody who sees himself as a genius and about the loneliness that's almost inherent that comes with that right. because you're smarter than everybody else, right? <laughs> so Yeah, well, it, it often accompanies either, yeah, either isolation or obsession, which can lead to isolation. Right. So I thought that was, that's just like a little piece of, of the philosophy that, that you can find throughout his stories. Yeah. And I, I, to me at times almost, and this is a hilarious edit, I would give a high school writer, but you know, I got to simplify the language here. Mm-hmm. It's almost too much tell and not enough show, honestly, for me in some of the stories. And when I review it, I think I'll say how that affected my overall assessment. But yeah, it's, there are paragraphs of just dumping just broad generalization, a lot of summaries of belief and it just there the stories don't have a lot of momentum it's it is a lot of just character work and summaries of backstory mm-hmm. so as a reader i think you know you can take or leave that if you enjoy that kind of immersion then these will probably do a lot for you yeah i think the quote i want to talk about then next is uh, another characterization detail and generalization detail from 29 this is in the second story because the second story focuses uh, on a main character who's a countess in um, some part of france i can't pronounce and uh, to describe her on 29 uh, de balzac writes since at an age when a woman still feels rather than reflects she had always had to repress her instinctive feminine feelings and emotions passion had remained unawakened in the depths of her heart so what do you make of that character work? I mean, we can just ask the question, right? Is that a, would you call it a sexist description of a person? I don't know. That That's tough because, I mean, I think that by today's standards, yes. Sure. But uh, during his time, uh, I would say that that's like a, a common thing that you would find in any piece of literature during that time is, is the idea that uh, women have so much feeling and stuff like that at the beginning of, and then they get married and they become more mature. They still have lots of feelings that they are better able to control and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I would say by today's standards. Yeah. (laughs) Be like, excuse me, what? But, (laughs) but I think, yeah, it's worth knowing as a reader then that the, there are these sweeping character moments where you just think, I mean, he's painting in such an obvious way. Again, it's very tell, tell, tell. Um, like he's just, he is just describing in the broadest way. Now, does that character by the end of that story seem complex to me? Yeah. Like, does she have a, an interesting little plot line in the story and, and does she have thoughts and interactions that add depth to it? For sure. I just think that quote is the one worth pulling because the, the stories are both like pretty dense with that kind of description. Yeah. He goes on to say in that same paragraph where you got that Mm -hmm. quote, some idea of the strength of this tie may be conveyed to the masculine understanding 
by adding that this was not only Madame de Day's only son, but all she had of kith or kin in the world, the one human being on earth bound to her by all the fears and hopes and joys of her life. So it's like, mm-hmm. this is, women will understand this, but in order for a man to understand it, you have to understand that this is her only heir. So it's like, mm-hmm. so he also addresses, I think the opposite side of that relationship, which he, you know, He's saying women are all about the feeling of it. And then the men look at it as their ability to pass on their, their, well, you, you know, we're just more practical and pragmatic. Right. You know? yeah. Sure. <laughs> <That's>, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah that, no, that's how that description comes off. It's a good, yeah, great follow-up quote too. And I, yeah, if you were to ask me by the end of that story, was she an interesting character? Yeah. And I, mm-hmm. and the setup is, you know, take or leave. It seems fine. Uh, for whatever it's worth. And again, this is research. Uh, our research department underfunded is from Wikipedia and Encyclopedia Britannica. Uh, so if you want to donate for more research, please, we, we, need, we need fact checkers desperately here on the pod. But uh, according to those two sources, it, the uh, he, most of his fans are like, he had fervent fans and they were mostly married women. And they really responded to his insights. And apparently this also, his insights came from having many affairs or uh, having a lot of trysts and romances. And then due to that, he thought he had a pretty keen eye for like what women in that time and place wanted, how they thought, what they felt. And yeah, apparently they, the contemporary women of his time agreed with him or thought he had some keen insights. And so, yeah, I don't know if that quote is representative of all the works or something, you know, his entire massive uh, catalog of, of books, novels, whatever. But yeah, I think there are some sweeping generalizations in there to be aware of, you know, things well, to I, think about. I think it's interesting that with that quote, it kind of like dismisses female feeling, right? But mm-hmm. when we delve into the story and Madame has to um, put up a front, she's a strength. He keeps referring to her as strong, right? The strength of her love for him mm-hmm. is what, what keeps her from breaking down and all this stuff. So actually it's a very complimentary way that he actually so. shows who she is as a person versus what he kind of like dismissively says about, about feelings it, it, the way that he actually portrays her is is actually very complimentary. So it's and, almost yeah, and comes off as different. she comes off as kind of sacrificial and noble in a way. Exactly. Yeah. So no, I agree completely. I think the if you were to read that quote, and and really as I look back at the quote too, there's no value judgments on when he says instinctive feminine feelings. He doesn't say what they are, and mm-hmm. he doesn't like talk down to them or something. He just yeah. acknowledges, or is ju- he's just saying that women have these emotions in them early on and hers were not ever awakened until she had her son. And so, and that, yeah, I think is a bit of characterization. It works though, in a sense, just because it gives you a clear, if again, disagreeable image of who she is. And then that, that pays off in the story for sure, because it becomes about her um, love for her son. Right. And so, yeah, that I think is a, I think we gave him a good slice there. Good example. I did have one other one that I'm not going to read because I want to get to a couple other segments, but I did have one from page 11, which again, in a span of a paragraph has like 30 names and references that <laughs> <Yeah>. you, <laughs> terms, allusions, just things I can't pronounce. And it is that kind of reading. It's, it was the most dense with footnotes of any of the penguin collection I've read so far. And so you have to just be ready to absorb information you will not know. Mm-hmm. Be patient, and uh, it, it's mostly rewarding. I think. Yeah, I, th- I, I think so. Okay, we're moving into the back half of the review. Let's do some, uh, and you and I are well suited for this as teachers, former teachers. I want to do a bit of a literary corner in every single episode. I think well, one thing we can do on the pod, or I can do, is be a bit more 
purposeful with the sorts of literary information I'm dishing out. I realize that a lot of listeners have no you know, interest in literature, never studied it. And that's, that's good. That's fine. And so maybe I'm hoping this can be a bit of an educational segment. I did want to highlight one literary element from this collection, and that is a frame story or a frame narrative. Do you uh, want to set up what a frame story is for the people? Uh, I can. I do, I, I do have a definition in there. I was I curious. If it, you, yeah. um, <laughs> I, let me, I'll do the definition. Then I, I want to hear your thoughts though on the frame narrative that was in there. Um, sure. So for those listening, a frame narrative, a frame story is basically a story that begins one way and then turns into a story being told within that story. So it would be like, if I came up to you at a, you know, we're hanging out at a bar and I said, hey, I was seeing my friend Fred the other day and we talked about Fred. And then I told you a thing that Fred told me. That's basically what a frame narrative is. Mm-hmm. Now, there are other sort of definitions that go along with this. I think what I settled on, this was from the, I think, Oxford Literary Dictionary. I think the example from this one is called the hypodiegetic, which mm-hmm. is a lower level version of this, which is a t- literal tale within a tale. Right. There are other versions, though, uh, in, in the theory of like diegesis, which it's a narrative term for a level of narrative that is the main story. And then at a higher level, a story can be told at an extra, uh, extra diegetic level. We don't have to worry about all that, but there you go. Now you can impress friends at dinner parties with <laughs> terms they'll never remember. But I think ours is, is a hypodiegetic diegetic tale within a tale. Now, in th- this collection, the story that had that was the one with the physician. And so the physician uh, is being sort of interviewed or spoken to from uh, with his mentee. And the mentee asks him why he goes to mass, because he's an atheist. Why do you do that? And then the rest of the story is just a story within a story, him summarizing his relationship with his mentor. Um, did you find that effective? Did you think that that literary, I don't know, that twist worked? Uh, for me, it was okay. Um, yeah. It reminded me a bit of when we were talking about uh, some of the writers who are like writing it as though they are writing a letter to somebody. And it, yeah, it yeah. reminded me of, um, I always go back to Frankenstein just cause I, I guess I love that book so much, but with Frankenstein, sure, yeah, no, okay. he's um, the writer. Walton is writing to his sister. And then he relates the story that he heard from Frankenstein about Frankenstein's mm-hmm. experience and stuff like that. So that was also a frame frame story. So the, that can be effective. And I think that it didn't detract from the story. I was thinking about why he would do it. And I was thinking that uh, maybe he did that in order to be able to make those generalizations and to get in those pieces of his um, wisdoms on humanity. So maybe it was his way of just being able to inject as a narrator, oh, let me make this observation. Let me make this observation. And it does. I think it works in a structural way really well here for two reasons I'll go over. The first is that it does. you nailed it. It allows you to immediately delve into a first person, really in-depth narration that you couldn't have had otherwise. And so, yeah, in that way, it kind of just structurally shifts where it's like now you can get a lot of direct insights from a character much more specific information and then that character becomes basically the narrator so it lets you shift voice completely mm-hmm. i think stylistically it doesn't do much here but for information it just reads as a lot more personal and i think it works in the story obviously it's a story about relationships and um having mentors and people care for you so yeah i think it works really well the other thing to me that's crucial and I think the story I think of when I think of um, frame narrative is Heart of Darkness. Mm. Now, Heart of Darkness is an interesting one because it, it doesn't do the thing I'm about to say this story did well, which is it's set up a lot before the frame narrative begins and then it concludes with you know some stuff. Heart of Darkness really doesn't set it up or conclude it much at all. I actually think that works really well in that story. I like the frame aspect of it 
for different reasons. We could save that for a follow-up pod. But in this case, I think it basically there was enough narrative before the frame started that you actually get a sense of like, oh, okay, I need now I understand why I need this character to give me such personal and extensive information, basically. Yeah. I think we just essentially what I'm looking for if you're gonna do that setup is I want the the before parts to be very purposeful and feel like just in concert with whatever the frame story becomes. Yeah. And so I thought this did that pretty well. I think so. There you go. That's your uh, dinner party chatter. Uh, We got you covered here on the pod. No problem. (laughs) Let's go to, I think will be my favorite new part of the new structure. We're going to conclude with two parts kind of in tandem. One thing I've realized, and you and I talked about this, I think on the last episode we did together, but our review system here, which is only out of three, a potential one, two, or three, and that essentially is can be simplified to read this, don't read this, or maybe read this. I think that's basically what it is. A one yeah. is don't read it. A three is please read this. And a two is eh, maybe. And I think what this has led to in a good way is just a ton of twos. And I kind of reserve special things for the ones and threes, which is great. Um, what I do want to end with, though, is a bit more of a positive uh, impression to leave the listener to if you're, you know, slogging through the podcast with us, hopefully enjoying yourself. But if you're listening to all these people talk about this uh, old literature, I do want you to leave with something positive to remember or think about. So I'm going to name this segment, the Russell French is my grandfather's name in memoriam. So what's good about it segment. He um, later in his life really loved this quote and he would say it a lot and talk to us a lot about it. He would just say, so what's good about it? Um, He was kind of an optimist by nature and a, just a good person, positive person. So that was one of his favorite lines was just to ask you, so what's good about it? And uh, that's what we're going to do here. Amanda, what do you think is good about this collection? Uh, I would say that the satire and his insights into humanity are Mm -hmm. my favorite parts of of both of the stories, actually. I think too. Yeah, the insights into humanity, and then I'm just going to go a little more specific. The character work here, I think is great. I thought it was really good. Like it's thoughtful and observant it's nuanced even though it does have that moment with the countess we were discussed at length i don't think that detracts from the overall progression she has in the story so mm-hmm. i think yeah, the characterization part is um just very snappy and, and really well written in, in most spots i agree here's another quote i can use to um underscore the characterization point this is a description of i believe it, either displaying himself or his mentee i think it's displaying um the surgeon genius It says, he had a profound contempt for mankind, having studied them from above and from below, having surprised them without pretense as they performed the most solemn as as well as the pettiest acts of life. That uh, from above and below, it's, you know, those are simple. It's a simple description and a simple little play with contrast. But I just thought that, again, was just such a great sentence of establishing who this person is, his beliefs, philosophy. Yeah. And I think a lot of sentences like that throughout the work um, really, I don't know, just worked for me. Yeah. Let's conclude then. We'd said some nice things. Now we might say some (laughs) not nice things. Let's conclude with our ratings then. Again, I just explained previously the system we use, basically a one through three. Amanda, what is this um, collection of two stories by, uh, what are we settling? Anor? Anor de Balzac? I guess that's what we're going with. (laughs) Yeah, let's go with it. I like it. What are are you going to rate it? I'm going to rate it as two. Um, Okay. So you know how I felt about like the characterization and the satire. Mm -hmm. um, And there's... Um, all that good stuff. So one of the things that I would, I could not give it a three uh, because of all the allusions to what was modern for him. And Mm -hmm. even like some of the historical references that he makes, like history for him, if you are not a historian or not somebody who studies literature 
or somebody who knows much about, you know, French history, a lot of these references are just going to be like, what am I even reading? <laughs> yeah, it's, it, is, it can be quite dense. I was thankful mine had at least a few footnotes in it. Yeah, I did a lot of the research on the computer as I was reading along. But that's not what slowed me down. Because I mean, it it's the same if you were to read, you know, Jane Austen or any period piece of literature, you're going to have a lot of references to things that you're not going to understand unless mm -hmm. you're also a historian. Um, and generally, unless something I think is like really important for me to understand, I, I can look it up later. I, it doesn't stop me from continuing to read as I'm reading. The thing I think that his, yeah, his descriptions are rich enough for it to be, if you paper over a lot of the illusions, I think you'll be fine. Yeah. Well, the, give uh, or take. I, I agree. You can, he uses similes and metaphors throughout with other similes and metaphors that you could actually get a better understanding of what he's trying to say. Um, but mm -hmm. what did slow me down was just his injections of his, his opinions and, right. um, and his insights. And that's, and it's, it slowed me down in that I stopped to think about what he was saying and like, did I agree with him? Did I not agree with him? And like take notes on like my response to that. So that was, if that's the kind of reading you like to do where you actually want to stop and think about like, huh, is that a good point? Do I agree with this point? Then this is right. like a great read. And if you don't really care about that and you don't want to go through like looking up, different illusions and stuff, then I would say you probably would not enjoy this very much. <laughs> yeah. And I'll echo in my, in my score too, I'm going to echo a lot of what you just said, because I'm, I'm also, a, this is a firm too. It's right in that sweet spot of, I admired a lot of the writing, thought it was pretty good. Also think that if you're, you know, if you want to read about the French revolution, it can perhaps be elsewhere, you know, done a little bit more passionately and movingly, you know, like Le Miserable is a movie that people seem to be obsessed with. I don't like musicals, so I'm out. But there's a, it just there's time. The time period is well covered in, in literary history, so I think in that regard, I don't know if I could recommend it wholeheartedly. And again, the characterization stuff builds investment. It reads really well. It's insightful and witty and interesting. It's also a momentum killer, I think, too. Like for all the reasons you just described, I think if you know what you're getting into and you want that style of reading it's perfect then. And I, for what it's worth, I'm at least mod modestly intrigued to read more of his stuff. I, I wouldn't mm -hmm. say I'm like dying to go read more of it, but you and I have discussed maybe doing a follow-up with a couple other stories. So mm -hmm. we'll see if that amounts to anything. It's, it was enough to intrigue me to maybe keep going. And um, yeah, I enjoyed huge chunks of it too. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, we've got a new format and a pretty decent recommendation. Not bad. Not a bad start. I will, as a brief um, spoiler preview of next week, I'm pretty sure next week's going to be a three for me. I'm almost certain. I don't, I don't know what could have changed my opinions to make uh, the yellow wallpaper, not a three recommendation. Uh, one, one of my, my favorite. favorite stories. <laughs> yeah. One of my all time favorite short stories as well. So I, I guess we'll find out cause I am going to reread it. And um, there's also two additional stories in that set. So maybe those will be disastrous though. I, I very seriously doubt it. So check in with us again next week. Um, we should be both pretty excited and effusive in our review of the yellow wallpaper. Anything Amanda for the listeners before we close out today? Uh, Nope, I'm good. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you. Did you enjoy the new format? Yeah, actually, I thought it was really effective. And, and looking at the outline and stuff, that definitely helped me to gather my thoughts beforehand. So I, I really appreciate it. Great. Okay. That. Yeah, I think we'll, and we'll get the flow of it. And, you know, for those listening who have been consistent, persistent listeners, thank you. Um, I won't be explaining the format every time, probably for the next few, I'll be setting up the segments, but eventually, hopefully uh, we'll be flowing and transitioning them between them. I mean, pretty smoothly. Amanda, thanks for stopping on again. As we've just mentioned, she will be with us next week for the review of the old wallpaper. And until then, we will see you between the classics. <laughs> <laughs>